Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Tina is the founder and CEO of Mastery Under Pressure, a management coaching program for high-performing executives who need to refine and master their interpersonal and interdepartmental skills, not only to excel individually, but to empower their teams and associates. Tina is also the author of the book, Mastery Under Pressure. Additionally, she works with athletes, artists, speakers, and other high achievers who want to be skillful at performing under pressure. She has an education background with a master's in social work and counseling. These have given her the opportunity to achieve 40 years of success, helping others manage change and pressure so they can experience themselves differently. Tina, welcome to the art of seeing clearly. I'm completely honored to have you on today, Tina. So why don't you just tell us a little about you and what guided you to dedicate your career to social work and counseling? Well, somebody asked me at a training a long time ago, and it was a whole group of people, of clinicians. And he said, when did you start helping people? <laughs> and everybody went, well, I, you know, I was this big. And so it's just always been a natural propensity for me. My mother, she was a non-degree therapist. I mean, okay. she never went to school. For it was very, very wise. And she really knew people and understood sure. people. So I inherited a lot of her abilities, honestly. You know, her wisdom, I could finish her sentences, she could finish my sentences. And so it was always the helping profession that I was interested in. Initially, I wanted to be a teacher. You know, you were either a teacher or a nurse. And and I hate the look of blood, so that wouldn't work for me. <laughs> so I became a teacher of special education, elementary and special ed, and I got into the classroom and I honestly hated it. I mean, I just really hated it. And I thought, oh my God, I went into the wrong profession. But then there was this all this time and yeah. Yeah, and then there was a social worker and a psychologist that would come and take out the kids and work with the kids and work with the families. And I said, oh, I think I'm in the wrong profession. It's it's allied, but not that, that. So I went back to school and I got my master's in social work and I wanted to be a psychotherapist because... When you are a psychotherapist, you have the permission and the training to go after the sources of problems rather than, I love business and organizational stuff, but I don't have permission when I'm in that role all the time to say, you know, maybe you're a child of an alcoholic or I'm wondering if you've ever been abused or because people run in patterns. 
And, you know, after you listen long enough, you really get a sense of some of the issues that people might have. And I like to get to the bottom line. I like to get to this. And I know from your profession, you probably do as well. I like the source. What's the source of the pain or the source of the bottom line of the issue? And how do we treat that versus just these other symptoms that are on top? Exactly. And then I was just fascinated with psychology. So I actually do love teaching. I am a teacher at heart. (laughs) I just didn't like that classroom, you know, kind of confinement. I haven't worked for anybody in 40 years. I'm not very good at, as my ex-husband used to tell me, not very good at taking orders. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing wrong with that, in my professional opinion. <laughs> oh, no, I've been perfectly content. But at the same time, you know, I've been on my own all these years. I've started over five or six times, all those different places that I told you that I lived. Every time I moved, I had to start over because that was before the internet and that you could take people with you. I've always paid for my own health insurance. I've never had anybody to pay for my vacations. I, that's just the way that I kind of run with this but I wouldn't do it any other way. So I think that's fabulous. So you are an entrepreneur who happens to work a lot in social work, counseling, psychotherapy, and you get to use all those skills in order to help high impact roles and professionals try to be their best selves as well. I guess, is that a good summary of that? That's a good summary. Yes. <laughs> I love my, I like really big minds and creative people and big strategies and saving the world and all of this kind of stuff. And so if I can access those people at that level, then they and if they buy in to their own personal growth, really, then it just kind of filters down and impacts everybody that works for them. So and many more people than just that person. Wow. I really love working with teams and groups of people and yeah. So tell us about your company, Mastery Under Pressure, which I feel really has become your brand as well. Was that always, has that been your company's name for 40 years? When did that moniker come about? Eight years ago, August day, August 15, 2015. I worked with a, a business coach and we started to kind of look at what I did and what I love to do and it's the conglomeration of a lot of the things that I'm interested in. So it's a combination of sports psychology, spirituality, energy work, East West learning theory, all these different things that I, over the years, kind of put together that, you know, this actually works, this stuff works. And so Mastery Under Pressure was coined, honestly, that day. And it's been eight years. And over that time, all the things that you see that I have, you know, all the podcasts and the book and the online program and the YouTube channel has been developed over the last eight years. But it's all a combination of all the other trainings. And I continue to learn. I love learning. And you absolutely must. You've been in this business now for four decades, right? And, and you keep going and you've rebranded yourself and you've started, you wrote a book, you've got podcasts, you've got your Instagram sites. You're not somebody who's giving up yet. No. <laughs> no, I sit they honestly, I was, when they, they go like that and they closed it, you know, I want to say I did it. And I did it for me 
is way beyond all my friends are retired. You know, they're all playing mahjong and golf. And I love to play tennis. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things I love to do. But I really love, I love teaching these skills to people who would not necessarily, unless you study this stuff, you wouldn't know it. You know, you learn by the school of hard knocks, you learn a lot of things over life. But if we could teach people when they're a lot younger and teach them the mm-hmm. skills, the tools, like I, literally in my, in one of my talks, I, it's a toolbox. You know, this is happening to me. I pull out this tool. That's happening to me. I pull out that, that tool. And the other thing that I did that I'm, I'm real proud of is I did a, a TEDx talk last year. And this is kind of a little mantra that I made up. It goes, cut, reframe, respond. Because the body gets triggered before the mind. And so if we talk, 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 we don't necessarily solve the problem. We just talk about it, but it doesn't change us. So my whole career really was, how do I get under the conscious mind? Because that's where change happens. And what do we need to do in order to experience ourselves differently? So here comes the trigger. I'd love to be able to the point where I just don't get triggered. You know, God, I was just crazy a long time ago, but doesn't right now. You stated something about it'd be great to be able to do this when we're younger. And yet, I think a lot of us as professionals, we're in these roles and we're thinking, oh, we've, it's not sometimes until we are in these roles, we're realizing how much help we actually need. And some of those tools that you're talking about, what are some, you know, one or two tools that you're like, these are the things that I think that a professional, an entrepreneur, a high-functioning CEO, these are things that people need to know. Basic things. Basic things is they need to know how to connect their mind and their body. Mm. Now, and this may sound like basic, but because the body gets triggered before the mind, I'll give you an example. Going back to my history when I told you I didn't like being in that classroom, and every time I seem to describe it, you, you, maybe your viewers can't see because we're on but I'm always like feeling like I'm in a box. I'm being controlled and I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It's not my natural way that I love to operate. So every time I feel like I'm being controlled from some source, from something that I'm not happy with, something that I don't like the way it's going, my first body response is when I feel the stress is in my shoulders and my neck. That's my mm-hmm. place. That's yours, yes their heart. Sometimes people feel it in their stomachs. But for me, as soon as I feel that tightness, I can turn around and start looking. That's my first clue. I can turn around and I can look, okay, where do I feel like I'm being controlled? You know, what just happened? I was in a really good mood two minutes ago and now I'm really not. Where did that come from? Oh, that person said to me something in a voice that really kind of disturbed me. Oh, so now I know where the problem came from. Oh, do I want to address that problem with that particular person? Or do I want to find another solution for it? Or that's where that this cut reframe, you know, respond. The cut is like, stop. Okay, I just noticed something. Where did it come from? And so that I can reframe it. Where's the thoughts and the feelings that are running through my body? Give me information, information. Okay, now I got it. Now I can choose to respond. You know, when we're not in in charge of ourselves. People think that being in charge of other, you know, external situations and trying to figure this out, 
that's being in control of your life. It's not. Being in control of your life means being a choice. Like it is our choice how we respond to that situation. Right. If we recognize what that trigger right. was and what that situation is doing to us. That means that we have to raise our level of awareness, you know, raise our level of consciousness so that we can begin to recognize what's going on around us and inside of us. How does that I, come into like the, the entrepreneur, CEO, high-functioning world? What's an example of how that might uh, correlate in for our listeners? I just got off a call with a company that hired me to work with two of their executives. And so they were just describing, you know, this one guy has so much going on, he's missing the detail. You know, they're kind of, okay, you know, you said you were going to get this to me such and such a day. You said this, you were going to get to, and he's got a million other things going on. And so until he recognizes that he's slacking, <laughs> that somewhere, something has to change. It's not working. It's not working in his favor. It's not working in this company's favor. You go even higher. Okay, he's got more and more people that he or she is going, you know, more and more people that they have to be responsive to. So in business, when things are going so fast, so fast, so fast, we have to be very agile. You know, our minds have to be very, that, that really is, in my mind, the highest level of, you know, good mental health is how flexible am I that I can recognize that what was two minutes ago is no more. Okay, now I'm in a different situation. You know, I just had a contract that I was signing and at first they told me it was two people, then it was four people, and then it was this and then it was that. And it's like, okay, so minute to minute, I'm having to shift. You know, is it this, is it that? Okay, so, but at each time I have to let go of the emotion that might be connected to it because I got to be in reality. That's something that needs to be trained. That doesn't seem like that's something that's just a natural like, how do you, I don't think that would be natural at all. And I don't, I feel like that's something that would need to, how do you train that? How do you get yourself so, trained to recognize those things? So the things that I teach in Mastery Under Pressure, I teach focus. When am I in focus? When am I out of focus? So if I'm going back to that example that I was just talking about. I like those examples, in focus, out of focus. That works for me. Yeah. You know, when do I get distracted? What are the best times for me to work during the day? I've never worked well at night, you know, and traditionally, you know, when I was doing just hour for hour all the time, you know, people wanted to work at night. Sorry, I'll see you in the morning. I'm a really good morning person, but don't ask me to work at night because I'm not here. So knowing yourself. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Knowing when you get distracted, being able to recognize it. You know, the statistics say that if you zoom off into one of the social media things for one minute, you're there for 20. Amen. <laughs> right? Yes. I'll quickly recognize, boom. Okay, so focus and then relaxation. So it's not just sitting in front of the TV relaxing. It's actually relaxing the nervous system. So the way that I talk about it is that let's imagine that you have a certain capacity to tolerate stress. We call it the window of tolerance. So as long as the stress is sort of in my zone, I'm good. But as soon as the stress hits my own nervous system's capacity, I go into the stress response. Most importantly, when we go into the stress response, our muscles get tight, our heart starts racing, the hands get clammy. But most importantly for high-performing people, we can't think. 
the brain goes offline, literally goes offline. And so the executive functioning, which is what we need to be high functioning executives, is not there. So I teach you know how to relax the body so that the mind is very clear and learning how to expand our tolerance for stress so that here it comes, just another problem. So again, through meditation, through breathing exercises, through learning how to initiate the relaxation response, which means that we can change that sympathetic nervous system, the one that's in high alert, to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is like, huh, okay, let's deal with this. No, everything's okay. Something that we just got to deal with. So this takes practice. It's You're training the body just like, you know, in one of my talks, I asked, how much time have you put into going to school to learn your profession? How much time? Years and years and years. Years right? and years. Mm-hmm. Right? How much time have you put into the kinds of things that I'm talking about to train yourself like an Olympic level athlete? Because that's what it requires, honestly. You know, it's the deep work. It's the real self-awareness and then retraining yourself so that this stuff becomes second nature. So then we hide out the body and then we start with the mind. So I call it, instead of positive thinking, I call it productive thinking. Do my thoughts produce something useful for me? Which is very different than, oh, I'm gonna make a million dollars. Oh, it's everything's gonna be great. You know, even the gratitude. That's wishful thinking, right? <laughs> It is without action. It's without action and it's honestly also without emotion Mm. because emotion has to be with us. We have to be connected to it. That's why I keep going like this. Again, people can't see me necessarily, but it's always connecting the mind and the body and the mind and the body. So, so for our listeners, Tina's constantly doing like, like center from mind to heart, mind to heart. She's kind of doing that constant center motion because if we're not in alignment, then something is off. And if we're not aware of it, we frequently take it out on other people. I can see that whether that's in the boardroom with my team or I could see that at home too. So this, I mean, these same thought processes can really, yes, you might work with a certain segment of the population and business, sports, those types of things. But I could see these same tactics being like, okay, how do I deal with my husband or my six-year-old who won't get dressed? That's right. These are universal, you know, and you know as well as I do when it comes to marketing, you have to pick a niche, right? Yeah. And so the niche is my high powered people for the reason that I explained. But how many of these people are also parents, right? And coaches of teams, kids, sports, and or standing on the sideline being, you know, parents of kids, sports. And so that as you raise, as you learn the skills as an adult, hopefully it impacts the kids. Because again, when I, when we look at what's going on in this world, of how many of these young people have no, no regulation of their emotions. Mm-hmm. Interesting, my, my daughter's class, they would teach them to actually you know, count to five, to take how many deep breaths. I can see those as being very small things in order to try to regulate their energy, their their nervous system to help them calm down and maybe process a little differently. Absolutely. And you, so you start with kids at that age, you know, and they're they're yelling at you or they're yelling at somebody and taking a breath 
is the only, and it has to be the right kind of breath. Because if you, a lot of times people say, take your breath and they go, <laughs> which just kind of makes them kind of hyperventilate. But it's, so it's a, it's a low breath, you know, from way down in the belly. And, but that is the only mechanism that we have that will actually change those nervous systems. It's the only voluntary mechanism that we can do because everything else is kind of automatic. So teaching a child at a very early age to, to take a breath when you're feeling a lot of emotion and think about how you want to respond, you know, how you want to talk back to this person, take that moment. This will stay with them forever. And, and forever. transcend all kinds of different scenarios in their life. Right. And it's focus, relaxation, dealing with negative self-talk, how to visualize and then dealing with fear. Those are the Ooh, five. Tell me about the fear. So I mean, we we have anxiety and fear all the all the time. There's anything new, different, out of the ordinary, but tell me what that means to you. Okay. So anxiety shows up. Well, actually stress and anxiety show show up by the way that we perceive a situation. So I might be fine getting on a pair of skis, right? You may be like the anxiety may be just like off the road. So it's the perception of how much control I think I have or I don't have. I love that. I love that. Right? Mm -hmm. So when I feel anxious, as soon as I feel anxious, as soon as I feel scared, I start to ask my question, myself that question, where do I feel out of control? What's in my control? Start with that. Somebody asked me today a question about, she suffers a lot for depression, periodic depression, and she thought about calling a wellness, you know, kind of call, but she was petrified if she ever did that that some, I said, well, what are the things that you're afraid of? Well, I'm afraid that that my boss is going to find out, or I'm afraid that I'm going to there's going to be a record, or and I just went through all these facts that she was so scared of, and just gave her facts that number one, nobody's ever going to find out because it's against the law for them to find out, you know. I mean, and just things that nobody's going to keep you in in, in, in a psych unit unless you're a danger to yourself or somebody else, and but nobody, blah blah blah. blah. It, the point is that without the data, her fear just went out of control. Yeah. So yes. again, when I come back to the same thing that I said to you earlier, I like to know the source. Where is it coming from? So our tendency when we feel fear is that we don't want to look at it. That's our, our most natural tendency is to want to avoid it. But when we avoid it, we don't learn from it. The fear is a messenger. Your body is sending you a message. And then there's a whole bunch of things that you can learn and do and take charge and shift and change. Oh, that's what I'm so scared of. And, you know, when I had this conversation with her, I said, what's the worst thing that'll possibly happen? And then could we deal with it? So as I listen to you, it's almost like fear could be your friend in a way. So fear could be your friend because it's actually teaching you 
and to get out of that situation, like, and really to look at a situation from a more of a data-driven angle. And as we get through that situation, the next situation that's similar, like, oh, I've done this before. I've been here before. I can change this and how I respond and how I how I'm going to deal with this. And so the more you know how you respond, you pick up your own patterns. Behavior runs in patterns. It doesn't, we're not all over the place. There's not a million things that are wrong and terrible. There's usually a couple of things that get in our way that we repeat over and over and over and over and over again. Do we ever stop repeating those things? Yes. <laughs> but that's the whole point of all this. As long as we recognize it and we can stop it ourselves. Yeah. So I, I call it my three eyes. So the process is first is the insight. Right? Oh, I see it. This is where the level of awareness comes in. Now I see it. Now I'm being taught or I'm finding new tools to deal with the same old, same old. So I'm going to implement this new tool. And I'm going to do it over and over and over and over and over again. This is where kind of the sports, you know, the athlete and creating new neural pathways, new habits so that we actually do change our brains. And then the third part of it is that it becomes integrated. It's like, I used to get a rise from this, doesn't even, not even a ripple. And over the years, you know, I've learned many techniques to help people kind of get to that place where you have the insight where we, we begin to start to open it up. And then honestly, the, the big mind puts a lot of pieces together. What I think and is I, fascinating I, about what you're, Speaking of is number one, I think I myself need these tools and tactics and need to hear these things and constantly be learning, self-evaluating and uh, trying to learn more about myself. So I know my triggers, how I respond and then how I interact with others and know my weak points as well and try to work on those. Yet some of these things, interestingly with my patients, I will also use some of these tactics. Like what is your number one fear? Is that really going to happen? Here's what I know. Here's what the data says to get them over a fear of moving forward or fear of change or making new habits in order to give them a better improved whole. And interesting, just stated a very different way and in a different industry, but it's interesting how some of those tactics and tools can transcend a whole bunch of different industries. Absolutely. This, the, the stuff that we're talking about, honestly, is universal. Yeah. Uh, there's a, you know, I didn't invent it. This, I just put it together based on who I am and the things that are, you know, I found helpful and useful. So, one thing that definitely causes me stress and pressure and creates fear is something called negotiation. What would you like to tell us about trying to master negotiation? Well, I just happened to have a course. <laughs> yes. It's you called. Do. <laughs> Like, ooh, I would love to take that course. It's very simple. It's online and it's very inexpensive. Uh, I really started it. I was asked by a woman's organization to do a talk. And I said, well, what do you think the main problem? You know, one of the biggest issues that your membership has. And it was negotiating. And being a woman and coming from it, that place myself, I had to start to look at, okay, so how did I learn how to do this? I'm still learning. I mean, you know, I'm still very aware of where my triggers might be so that I know not to go down that path, to go down this path. I have a whole bunch of different ways of looking at it. But basically, it's the same thing. It's starting to recognize 
where do I fall apart in a negotiation? Where do I cave? How do I give in? Where do I give in? And why do I do that? And I'll tell a very quick, funny story <laughs> that I, and it's in my course. I was at a conference and I met somebody who was interested in my work. And he said, well, let's meet a little bit later and we'll talk about possibly working together. Now, I knew that this guy was very, very successful and had a lot of money. And he was just a, one of those really great candidates, somebody that I really wanted to work with. And I came up with a figure in my head about how much I was going to charge him, which was the most that I had ever charged anybody at, prior to that point. So it was $2,000 a month. That's what I was going to charge him. And so we sit down, we talk, and he, asked, he said, I love, after we're talking, he said, I love to work with you. How much do you charge? And I say, 1500 And he said, oh, 15 easy. I would have paid you more for, you know. And I walked away and I kicked myself. I said, Tina, how did you do that? <laughs> Why did you do that? Where did you? And so that became honestly the genesis of this course. Because once I started to figure out what I did and how I caved, and what it was connected to, then I could figure out how to, the solution. And so for each one of us, we have different ways of thinking about it. You know, am I worth it? Am I not worth it? Is, can he afford it? Can they not afford it? Can they? We put in all these conditions and then we shift and change, so to speak, to fit what somebody else, what we think that they're going to want from us or pay us, as opposed to there was a woman that I, I saw work one time and I really loved to work and I wanted to work with her individually. And I said, how much do you charge? She said, I charge $500 for an hour. And if that doesn't work for you, I can, I'm more than happy to, you know, you can buy my book, you can take my course. I've got other people that I've trained. They charge a little bit less than I do. So I wanted to be like her. And so it, again, it takes this, this self-awareness paying attention to your body internally when you're in a negotiation. What's going on in here? And then how do I actually want to respond? Even if I'm feeling anxious and inside, I don't want to portray that. Mm -hmm. So what do I need to do? And what learn what you need to do? Well, again, we break it down into little pieces. Okay. Uh, and the way that you and I would have that conversation is we would kind of get you into being in a situation and then we would start to ask the questions. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Where's this going? How do I want it to go? Um, one of the other things that I talk about in my course is visualization, visualizing it ahead of time. You know, looking at the roadblocks, looking at my possible thing, looking at their objections, what might they say, having answers. I mean, there's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. But it's basically really you understanding you, where you might get triggered, and then how do you want to do it differently? Yeah. The art of negotiation. I think that'll forever be a learning. You know, something, something to be learned and improved upon. Yes. Well, so my course is called the How to Be a Confident Negotiator. Mm. So we'll talk. Yeah, love it. Love it. One of the things that leaders, entrepreneurs, a lot of, you know, how to say people in high pressure positions may or may not know that they have are a lot of blind spots. How do you feel like that goes into trying to master, you know, master pressure, master stress? What do blind spots have to do with that? 
Oh, I, I always tell everybody, everybody else knows them. Don't you like to know your own? <laughs> oh, that's that's really good. That's really good. Yes, true that. Because they do. You ask people that are close to you and people that work with you, you know, for feedback. What what do you see maybe that I'm not seeing? You know, and you could do that in a meeting. You could, you know, and that's where having being that leader who is open and transparent, not to a, the point where you're feeling like incredibly weak and you need people to take care of you. Again, there's a whole other thing about leadership that we could be talking about, but it's being that leader that says, you know what, I'm not perfect. And there are things that I give you permission to share with me some of the things that I could do better to help you better in your work. Just like an example. Mm -hmm. To help discover what those are. That's right. And then the other evidence is really taking the time for yourself when you feel like you're falling into a situation that feels less than good. And you said it, like, how is this familiar? Where did this happen to me before? You know, how much of this situation is similar to another situation? You know, when I started doing a lot of this work to scale my business and to move beyond where my, just my private practice, I was bumping into all kinds of roadblocks and, you know, being disappointed by people. And, and so I had to start to look at what am I doing or what am I not seeing such that this is happening to me more than once. And so when I started to pick up the scene that I had done it maybe two or three times, the third time it's like, this feels very familiar. And, and, you know, people that I thought, you know, who had been successful in certain situations, certain businesses, but they were starting a new business and they were great salespeople and pulled me in. But I then became a guinea pig for their new business. So it took me a couple of times to, oh, it happened there, it happened there, it happened there. Oh, now it's not going to happen again. So when you get into those situations, Tina, I mean, you're the expert to try to help others in those situations. So who helps the helper? You know, I always, who has been a source for you or a few people like that, that like, hey, I've leaned on this person or that person, or maybe give us a piece of your mother's advice that you still, you know, Honing I to that all the time, but I there's no way that I could be where I am without the help and support that I've gotten or reached for. Every coach needs a coach. You know, every teacher needs a teacher. We always need someone who, who is beyond where we are. So, you know, somebody's in private practice, they need a coach. I mean, I've got that down pat. Exactly how to do that. I've done it five or six times. I'm very successful at it. Okay. Have I scaled my business to millions and millions and millions of dollars? No. But who has? There's a group of people over there that are where I want to go. And either I pay them or trade with them or join organizations where I can be a part of it. I just came back from a, a weekend. I just came back last night from these people that are doing amazing, amazing things, you know, building wealth and impact. And the one thing that they have in common is they're all heart-centered people. They're all people, do-gooders like mm. me, who have found a way to get gathered together, share knowledge, 
So, mm. you know, we never can have it all, know it all. And that's where that humbleness comes in, that coachability. And again, I have to respect the person. If I don't respect them, that's why I, don't, I haven't worked for anybody in so many years because I can't, I won't put myself in a position where people are telling me what to do that I can see beyond where they can, especially when it comes to people stuff, because that's the stuff that comes most naturally to me. You know, and I'm sitting in a meeting and they're like, are you kidding? And I have to spend hours and hours there. It doesn't work for me. But somebody that I really respect and I watch their success and I value their training and their knowledge, I am all ears. Teach me, please. Yeah. And as we were talking about, I think before we started, that teachability that you have, that continual curiosity you have is what's kind of kept you going and has continued to transcend probably where you ever thought you'd be before. What made you want to do this at this stage? What was it that propelled you to say, I'm going to take this further? All your friends have retired from what I hear playing Mahjong and those kind of things. Yeah. Yet here you are, like scaling your business. What's so, the driver? I was married to somebody for 34 years that was not the right person for me to be married to. And so he was always trying to hedge me in. So again, how many times? Put I, you in a box. You're doing the box hands again. Right, right. Exactly. Right. In a mm-hmm. box. But I, I used to ask myself all the time, what would it look like if I actually used my potential? That's- what that that should be like a like a question for everybody. What would it look like? What would my life look like? Who would I be if I actually used my potential? And that's the driver. And continues to be the driver. You know, I have some other practical things that around here that you know, a great income is really helpful and all that stuff. So that my husband teaches tennis, doesn't have to teach thirty hours a week and thirty. <laughs> is he your coach too? Is he your tennis coach? Yes, when I'm able to grab him away from his 35 other students. But no, the point is that, you know, we want to make our lives as comfortable financially as possible and my contribution helps. But the real driver, because I could do that just doing private practice. I don't have to do what I'm doing. Um, The real driver is this potential. I love speaking, I love teaching, and I love impacting. And just these conversations that you and I are having and you're talking about your six-year-old daughter and something like transfer to her and that's the stuff that that excites me well thank you for spending some you know spending some time with me doing this one other question i oh i've got a few other questions let's be one of the things i i want to know is how do you personally practice what you preach how do you master under pressure okay i meditate three times a week i'm in a little meditation group where the guy who runs the group is also a business maven. So between business and spirituality, we do that three times a week. I hurt myself in a car accident not too long ago, but I play tennis twice a week. I walk twice, you know, good good walks two, three times a week. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm still getting waiting to get back into, and I love to dance. I haven't been doing very much of that. That's like my favorite. So one of your loves has been dancing. I think there's a story behind how that started. And I think that our listeners would love to hear what that story was and how that has impacted your life. Okay. So given the fact that how many times we've talked about my business with control, that is my central issue. And when I was younger, 
I wouldn't get up and dance because I was too embarrassed. Although I knew how to dance because I used to dance when I was younger and I, I went to a high school where 60% of the, the group was black and the black girls used to teach the white girls how to dance in the gym. So I learned from the best of the best of the best. I lived, I grew up in Philadelphia and so I knew how to dance. And I lost boyfriends because I wouldn't get up. And then I was at a training one time and they closed the lights in between the sessions and they put the music on and I said, oh my God, these shoulders, they move. You know, they were so, so frozen. And so I just started dancing. I had so much fun. And, and I went to a wedding soon after that. And this, there were all these dancers that they brought in to, from New York City to Washington, D.C. for this bar mitzvah. And this older woman comes over. She's like, are you one of the dancers, you know, that they brought in from New York? And I went, oh, my God. You, you know. Of course I am not. <laughs> Then and then, I, I many years later, I lived when I was in New York. I had I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and somebody asked me one night if I wanted to go swing dancing at the Cotton Club in Harlem, yeah. and I said okay. So we went. And I sat there like, you know what we used to do is wait for somebody to ask me to dance. Finally, some guy, great looking guy, comes over and he asked me to dance, and he was just <laughs> dancer, and I was so nervous, and he said you're good. You're good. Just keep dancing. Just keep dancing. And that's what I did. Every night, every day I went for radiation and every night I went dancing. And then for all the years that I lived in Manhattan, which was seven wonderful years, I just danced and danced and danced. And it's my happiest time. As one of my friends says, Tina has her dancing face on. You know? oh. Love it. Nice. Does your husband like to dance too? He's a fabulous free di- freestyle dancer. Uh huh. But that's like partner dancing. Partner dancing. God's right. No, I love partner dancing because I love the connection. And so well, he's good to take to parties and stuff. And yeah. Love to dance with them, but <laughs> he's a terrible lead. I think one of the one of the things you just said about that that gentleman who asked you to dance that I think I take out into life and business that sometimes we just need somebody to tell us that we're good and to keep going. Like, you're good. Just keep going. And to have somebody who has that instills us with that confidence. Before we uh, sign off, I want to hear from you. We started at the beginning with mom's advice. And even though mom had no formal training, what did your mother teach you? Oh, my goodness. So many things. First thing that just comes to mind is that when you're looking for friends, always look for people who can bring you up. (laughs) And that was one thing. And then always, as I moved so much, she said, you need to find people who need new friends. So, you know, people who are already in their groups and had their families and that, you know, they, they might like you, but they don't need you. You know, so I'm moving, you know, so many times. I'm, Do you have any friends? <laughs> no, I just, oh, maybe you'll be my friend. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, she taught me so many things. Like, yeah, but that's the first one that came up. Oh, well, I love it. With that, we'll let you sign off, Tina. Thank you so much for spending some time with me, teaching us about you, teaching us more about how our mind, our bodies, our spirits all work together as we're trying to transform ourselves into being better leaders, uh, better entrepreneurs and CEOs and high achievers. 
and that it is on all about what we do. It's sometimes how we do it and how we respond to situations that will make us even better and wiser. So thank you again so much for spending some time with us on the art of seeing clearly and helping us see a little bit more clearly with our minds and our bodies. Thanks, Tina. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. <laughs>